Okay, this is episode 108 of the We Do Science uh, Guru Performance Podcast. And uh, my two guests today have both been on before. Um, it's Dr. Michael Joyner and Professor Stu Phillips, although you're both professors. I sort of, I, I sort of what, what sort of title should we come up with you, for you guys? Knucklehead. Knucklehead. <laughs> Look, just because you're lifting heavy weights now, Michael, you know, you know let's be careful. Just call um, me bro. Bro, I thought you were a bro. That's the whole point of having you on. Am, bro, <laughs> bro <Okay>. professor. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I have a funny feeling about this podcast today. <laughs> um, so the reason why I, I wanted to get you guys together um, was you had recently um, had a paper published about outrunning bad diets beyond weight loss. Um, um, and... This is a really interesting topic that I, I wanted to get into. But before we explore why you wanted to write this paper and then we can get into this topic and, un, and unpack it. Um, um, I mean, it's, I said that you've both been on before. I was just looking at my list of, of podcasts. Michael, we discussed Physiology of Champions back in February 2017, which was episode 94, which is, which is one of my must-listen-to podcasts for everyone that I direct to. We had a really great chat um particularly the haikus that you came up with uh, at the end of that which was the only thing people talked about the podcast online they just kept going on about the haikus but at least we had some impact um and Stu, you've been on multiple times um uh, as far back as uh when i almost started the podcast uh you and kev tipton were talking about protein which we also updated in episode 98 back in 2017, but we've also discussed in episode 36, the hormone hypothesis um, in February 2015, and we also did in episode 74, gaining muscle and losing fat in an energy deficit in 2016. So I highly recommend everyone has a listen to all of those. And there's actually uh, aspects of those podcasts which would lend um, some benefits to today's chat. But if you both um, could just quickly uh, tell the audience who you guys are and what you're, you're currently up to. Um, so, Michael, if you can help us out there. Yeah, I, I'm a physiologist and anesthesiologist at the Mayo Clinic where I direct a lab that looks at uh, how humans respond to physical and mental stress. Sometimes it's exercise. Sometimes it's thermal stress. Sometimes it's mental stress. We've been doing a lot of blood loss studies, which has relevance to anesthesia, and also a lot of hypoxia studies. And really fundamental questions about oxygen transport and regulation of the circulation units. So that's been my main interest for a long time, really since the late 1970s. Yeah, that's great. And you have a very, I mean, my interests are trying to translate the science and unpacking it into an applied, um, an applied area, which is, which is exactly what you're doing, literally. Um, there, so I'm looking forward to to talking to you about this topic. And and Stu, uh, give us some background. Uh, I mean, if, if people don't know who you are, they've obviously not been listening to my podcast. But yeah. but give us some background. Yeah, um, Stu Phillips. I'm in the Department of Kinesiology. We have a keen interest in the interaction between diet and physical activity. Uh, the activity being more slanted towards resistance exercise than aerobic exercise. And then in the regulation of uh, skeletal muscle mass, so whether you're gaining it in one sense or uh, losing it because you're inactive or consuming insufficient macronutrients of one form or another. So we've, and we've done some weight loss work as well. 
That's awesome. And, and you also have a very applied, focused mindset, don't you? And um, have good background and experience of actually putting this stuff, stuff into practice, which I think is important. Yep. So, I mean, so this paper, um, Outrunning Bad Diets, the, the editorial that was in the um, British Journal of Sports Medicine uh, in December 2018. So it's nice and fresh still, this paper, which I will link to in the uh, podcast notes. But, but I mean, what, why, why was this paper written, guys? Why, you know, why this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that most people who spend time on uh, social media talking about weight loss and talking about dieting or activity and, you know, which one is better uh, are probably at some point faced with the concept that somebody says, well, you can't outrun a bad diet. And it's a phrase that's been coined. Um, you know, there was another uh, editorial that Asimo Hultra and uh, Tim Noakes wrote uh, in the same journal uh, saying exactly that. And, and it sort of became that phrase became so trite. And I, and I think for uh, probably uh, a while now, people have sort of believed that, that exercise, you know, is essentially, if it's not, you know, unuseful, it's, it's close to useless in, in managing your, your body weight. Um, so when I was talking, Mike, I said, I think, you know, this, it needs sort of the, the counter argument or the counterbalance, if you like, to just bring some perspective to the discussion um, and not to completely undo because we freely admit in the editorial that if you had a choice, uh, the energy restriction through dietary means is probably more effective in weight loss, but trying not to lose sight then of all of the other benefits that you get along with exercise as well and trying to take the lens away from, from the weight loss only paradigm. Yeah, I think, Lauren, one of the things to amplify what Stu said is you get out on social media and, and you see a whole lot of very absolutistic statements about diet especially and exercise as well. And in reality, when you, when you zoom out, uh, all discussions about diet and ex exercise are context dependent. All discussions are context dependent. And I think what Stu and I were trying to do is, is, is highlight a few fundamentals and then also point out this context dependency. And, and, and uh, so to make a, a blanket statement, you cannot run a bad diet, is, ju is just not accurate. No, I completely agree. And in fact, I was, as you were saying that, um, you know, one thing I, I had become famous for saying throughout my podcast is the use of the word context. And you have completely destroyed my <laughs> reputation by using it so well and so many times. But it is, it's not a word that you can um, leave out of this type of conversation. You know, um, context really is important. And that is the problem with these kinds of statements. And of course, it's Twitter friendly, because it's a few words it's easy to sling out there but but we're not talking about um just a simple case of of things being misunderstood it is a it is a profound myth i guess one could say isn't it i mean as a physician as well as a, a researcher and a physiologist you know we're not just talking about implications here for um you know weight loss and you know is it easier to just cut calories or is it easier to do right. some exercise it's much broader than that isn't it well it's like we were talking about uh before you started recording 
you know, especially in people that at late middle age or as they get into their 60s and 70s, the functional status of people, can they get out of a chair? Uh, what's their grip strength and so forth becomes really important determinant of how well they survive, for example, surgery, how well they uh, just do in life in general. So I think that that's also something to think about. And I think Stu and others have touched on that many, many times. So in your, in your paper, one of the, um, I think it's the first paper you even reference actually, which is the, um, the, the uh, energy balance paper, um, you know, the key to a unified message on diet and physical activity. I, I read that paper, I'd never read it before, and I read that paper, I mean read your paper, and I've got it, it's one of my favorite papers now. Absolutely fantastic, and, and this concept of, of um, you know, energy balance is not new, obviously, to, to those of us that have discussions about nutrition and, and weight management. But as a framework um, that ultimately introduces this idea that, that, that exercise and, you know, um, calories and so on, it, it's not a reductionist sort of one or the other. It, it, you know, it is a, it is a, it is a sort of a, um, it's a yin and yang. It, it's a combined issue. Stu, what, because and you've done, you guys have both done huge amounts of research over the years with immense amounts of publications. And of course, maybe we could just firstly delve into why potentially we get into this issue. Um, you know, the reductionist uh, approach, but, you know, my view on that is, well, it's important for science, of course. But we are also talking about how this stuff is supposed to influence practice and decision making. What, what, you know, why does this ultimately end up with these big messages um, yeah. like this one? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the uh, and and again, you know, to Mike's point about the the absolutism of statements that appear on social media is to recognize that when we talk about weight loss, everything in that arena runs through energy balance and. You know, there are some slight sort of tweaks that we could put in there when we talk about the macronutrient composition of weight loss, for example. Um, but they're really playing in the margins. It's not, it's not a, you know, this sort of central principle is creating some type of imbalance. And so, you know, I have people on my Twitter feed saying, you know, calories in, calories out, energy balance, like we've smashed that. And, you know, that's just, that's ridiculous. Mm. Uh, so I don't know of a single serious researcher in the area of weight loss, and you can run the gamut from, you know, Kevin Hall to, you know, uh, it doesn't matter who you talk about, uh, who doesn't believe that, that there is a, a fundamental sort of truism, and that is, is that calories in, calories out, or energy balance does matter. Yeah. So, um, you know, even even if you... Um, really pin down some of the hardcore believers in ketogenic diets. And, you know, again, we can, we could have a whole nother discussion on that. Um, the concept is energy balance and, you know, so creating an imbalance, whether it's dietary or, or physical activity related is, is really the, the core of this. And, you know, uh, the, the paper that we referenced, the first paper you mentioned in the, uh, the meta analysis in there talking about, compensatory behaviors really sort of sums up our understanding and it's it's difficult to find uh, a consistent message out there to explain why some people do and some people don't that isn't related to 
adherent uh, behaviors one way or another. If it's through one particular diet and you achieve success, thumbs up, great, no problem. I would never, you know, sort of say this is the approach, but it's a or an approach to to losing weight. So, um, you know, people people who do work in this area um, it, and take things seriously, um, energy balance is still the crux of the argument. And, and Arne, when you when you read about people on on some sort of branded diet, whether it's a specific name or it's you know low carb, low fat, whatever, ketogenic, what you find is is that that makes it very easy for those folks to restrict food choices. Mm. And one of the problems in the current sort of supermarket environment is this vast array of food choices that have been engineered really to addict us. I, I have an undergraduate degree in food science, of all things, many, many years ago. And the, uh, the, the, the big companies all really have psychologists who study the uh, sensory addictiveness or sensory palatability of taste. And they know exactly how much salt, sugar, and so forth to put in these products to keep us eating. So I, th I think that's one thing. And I think, you, you know, to Sue's point about it's all energy balance, there's this very interesting case report a physician kind of a biotech player named David Shaywitz wrote about himself in Forbes. It just came out, uh, I think the first of the year, David lost 80 pounds in a year. He went on a keto diet, so on and so forth, but he also exercised about 300 calories a day, which either gave him additional caloric deficit or obviated the sort of behavioral things Stu was talking about, compensatory uh, uh, sitting around when you're trying to lose weight. And if you go do the math of these 80 pounds or about 35 kilos, probably 40% of the weight loss was accounted for by this 40 minutes of aerobic exercise he was doing every day. So again, you know, it's very, very hard to defeat this sort of calories in, calories out, thermodynamic element. And when you hear about these, these miracle diets, Frequently they work because they restrict food choices and by restricting food choices, you hit the bingo button that, um, that uh, Stu just mentioned of adherence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as a practicing nutritionist and I've been in practice a long time, I, I can tell you the countless numbers of, of people who you end up working with who've tried many different diets over the years and um, you know, they're back in your office trying to solve the same problem, aren't they? Um, I, I, I mean, look, it, a lot of this stuff is deeply nuanced, isn't it? And that's the problem is, is we're trying to reduce some really technical stuff, which face it, we don't actually know very much about this stuff, not really. Although there's plenty of people who profess to know a lot um, about this stuff. We're still learning um, and, it's, and it's very, complicated and of course as you say um uh you know context is a is a massive factor here um and all of that complexity makes it very difficult to communicate whether it's between researchers between who obviously will have different perspectives it's amazing isn't it how how many differences of opinion there are out there and different you know perspectives um uh, there can be um so when we, when we hear these statements like, you know, you can't outrun a bad diet, um, it, 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 it's attractive because it's such a simple, sexy statement that sort of 
makes sense. Yeah. Unless, unless, of course, we start to unravel all of this. Um, so there's various angles I want to get into here, uh, using your, your, your paper as a framework and some other stuff that I've thought about. And I, because it's you guys, I want to just quickly explore a few of the sort of mechanistic physiological things that I think are worth discussing just to show how complex some of this is. But, you know, we, 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 we've talked, well, we've mentioned the word energy balance. Um, maybe, Stu, um, you could help us, you know, obviously there are lots of intelligent people listening to this, um, but terms like energy balance, energy expenditure, um, energy availability, that, you know, it, 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 it is in reality not so simple as energy in, energy out. You know, as I said, it's a very nuanced thing. Maybe you could, from your perspective that's relevant to this discussion, what, you know, what should we be talking about when we use terms like energy balance, energy expenditure? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that the, the big thing uh, that a lot of people maybe get wrong when we talk about energy expenditure, particularly exercise-induced energy expenditure, is a, 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 just a flat-out overestimation of A, how much energy they expend, and then B, how much energy. So we're actually, you know, we've got lots of uh, wrist-worn devices and all kinds of things now that do a pretty good job of sort of tracking that energy expenditure the outside of things. And we've really got nothing to, to measure the energy intake. Um, and, you know, I've tried to make the example a couple of times on Twitter that it's, it's really easy to outheat or out, you know, compensate, if you like, um, energy expenditure that comes from physical activity. So, you know, you go out and you run four or five miles and, you know, that's a, that's a pretty good run. And, and you've burned, you know, sort of 500 some odd calories and the next thing you know, you think, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm in a good, I'm in good shape here. No problem. Uh, and you can eat, you know, a, a donut or a pastry or some sort of sweet. And you completely compensated for the amount of energy that you burn, right? So the common experience, a lot of people say, man, I'm doing a ton here and I'm not losing any weight because, you know, things are essentially canceled out. If you knock the pastry out of your diet, and even if you don't do anything else, and you're adherent to keeping that pastry out of your diet, that's a regular part of it, it's hard to become so much more sedentary to compensate for that. So it's easier to create the energy deficit by just cutting a food out, and as Mike said, restricting your food choices, than it is to, if you like, out-exercise. So, you know, when we make this point in the paper is to say, if you have the choice and weight loss were your only goal, then a dietary approach is, you know, in all likelihood is going to be more effective. I think the, um, the player in there that a lot of people sort of forget about is your, your resting metabolic rate. And, and for most people, um, that's the single largest component of energy expenditure in a day. And, you know, so if you're dieting, um, or if you're doing something to try and restrict energy, then the, there are vast compensatory mechanisms that are present and your resting metabolic rate is downregulated. It's, it's a survival mechanism. Uh, and the degree of that downregulation is, you know, depending on the weight loss that you're trying to achieve is, is pretty substantial. So now all of a sudden, you know, the weight loss that you're trying to achieve is much more difficult. And, you know, Kevin Hall recently gave a talk here and he was talking about, it's almost a perception of effort 
that it takes to sustain that type of weight loss that now is, you know, it, it, it's tough because hunger kicks in. And I know a lot of people say, oh, I was never hungry losing, you know. Uh, so my main point is, again, coming back to, you know, sort of broader reviews and looking at the bigger picture, anybody who loses weight at some point, if they're doing it from a dietary perspective, experiences some degree of hunger. Some may argue that you get less on a certain approach versus another, but that, if you like, is I think the strain or the perception of effort in the system that most people don't find enjoyable. And then fundamentally, it's, it's going back in the other direction. Um, I, I had a, a brief conversation with Jim Hill one time, who, again, another prolific researcher in this area, sat, happened to sit next to him in a session, and he gave uh, a really brief, it was three slides, three minutes, you know, why do people have a, such a hard time um, losing weight? And his point to me was once you gain the weight, it's almost like the thermostat is broken. And it's really tough after you've gained that weight, if you lose it, to keep yourself in that state. And he figures that actually the behaviors that got you to there, whatever that was, you're kind of locked into doing them now, even to maintain your new body weight, because you can't go back to the way you ate or the, the amount you ate or the things that you did or didn't do when you were that weight. So you never really go back to what you were unless you've changed some things in your life pretty substantially for most people, depending on the degree of weight loss. Lauren, and, and I think I think Stu brings up Jim Hill, and there's the, the really important point there. You know, if you've seen one successful uh, weight loser, in some ways you've seen them all. And by successful, I mean, you know, over the course of years, they've all re-engineered their lives to build in physical activity, to reduce screen time, to restrict their diets, and so forth. And, and Jim has some terrific papers from the National Weight Control Registry, which people can go to online. And all of these people do five or six things, weigh themselves regularly and so forth. So again, you can look, you can drill down and, and try to hair split. And that may be important from a research perspective. But when you look at the big picture, uh, all successful weight, uh, long-term weight losers do five or six things. And they do them absolutely religiously and have really in their own micro environment reversed this obesogenic environment that we all live in. And, and, and one other thing I think Stu mentioned about eating the donut, you know, when you go to Canada, you can always stop at Tim Hortons and destroy any, no matter how much exercise you've done that day, True. you can destroy it in less than 15 minutes at Tim's. Right. And the stuff True. is terrific. Yeah. Anyways. Um, but one thing that I always think about is in the late 70s and early 80s when I got into this, there was the original running boom. And in the original running boom, people were not trying to break four hours for the marathon. They were trying to break three hours for the marathon. And you had all sorts of people running 70, 80 miles a week or, or more than 100 kilometers a week, 110, 120 kilometers per week. You could not go to the fast food place and get a liter of or two liters of sugar-sweetened beverage for a very low price and so forth. And because they were, we were in a little bit uh, less uh, cheap food, cheap sweet food environment, you know, those people lost weight. A lot of them, a whole lot of weight. But they weren't doing 500 calories of exercise a day. They were doing like 1,000 or maybe more. And, and the cheap food availability, believe it or not, was less in 1980 than it is in 2019. So we have seen examples, and again, it is context-dependent. Now, 
can the average person go out and do a thousand calories of exercise a day? No. Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> now you mentioned something about the real world, which is something I wanted to quickly get into is, is to differentiate this lovely squeaky clean environment of a nicely controlled study as opposed to free living conditions, real people in the real world. And obviously I used the word nuanced earlier and you're using the word context. What, what is, you know, because when people talk about this on social media, you do have the semi-educated people out there, you know, getting all sciencey and throwing evidence and, you know, my, my perspectives and evidence-based, you know, it's, 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 you know, calories are calories and it's energy in, but, but of course, we're not, we're not necessarily being mindful of human beings in a free living environment. I mean, from your perspective, you know, how important is that to bear in mind in applying? Well, well I think some of the more successful programs, or at least some of the research studies, there's one by, led by um, the Gardner Group at Stanford where they compared low, low fat, low carb, and just uh, healthier eating, less processed food in two groups, and there was some uh, genetics involved in this as well. But one of the things that they did was actually teach people how to eat and shop. I think one of the things that's missing and where the dietitians can help us so much is to actually teach people to shop. And I know some places there's, there's uh, mock supermarkets and so forth. There are, uh, you know, there's more to life than phone apps, but there are phone apps that can help people make healthy choices at fast food places and, and control the energy in uh, uh, part of the equation as, as Stu mentioned. Yeah. And, and this whole sort of mindful eating movement and, and so forth. So I think one of the things people have to think about before they think about, or, or as they think about the biology of all this, is the sociology, psychology, and almost, for lack of a better word, eating and shopping skills that are are missing. I mean, um, you know, for for I mean, and cooking for sure. Cook, yeah, cooking as well. You know, and mm. and. You'd be amazed at what happens when people cut the chips and fries out of their out of their diet and 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 never have anything more than a, a seven ounce sugar sweetened beverage. I mean, there are people that have lost weight only eating at fast food restaurants, but they get the smallest stuff on the menu, and you know it's a five hundred calorie or six hundred calorie lunch, and that's no problem. Actually, what yeah, there's an interesting perspective here that I'm particularly interested in. Um, is when people are cutting calories, that they're, they're, they're not just cutting calories, they're cutting food. And the result of that is they're cutting potentially essential nutrients um, that can have implications for health and, and so on. So, uh, you know, when I'm thinking about athletes, of course, this gets us into the realms of relative energy deficiency um, situations. And in fact, um, the last podcast I did was um, all about relative energy deficiency in sport, particularly with, uh, with females. But, um, um, and that's with Dr. Kirsty Elliott Sell. Really fan fantastic conversation. So I recommend everyone listens to that. Literally episode 107. Um, but also, we, we, um, I sat at a lecture on an event that we put for at Guru Performance. Um, uh, Professor James Morton talked about relative energy deficiency in males in male athletes. And this is where I think this making this relevant to this out running a bad diet sort of thing is, is the broader implications of over exercising or overdoing the, the, the cutting 
of the calories is is because people are not allowing for the nuances for the contexts their simplification of you know you can or you can't outrun a bad diet is very much at the expense of all of these these things that we're we're talking about which is actually what i want to get into with both of you um in a minute because i want to talk about the benefits of exercise um and uh, and so on if, if i can just change I, i'm sure you've got a response there but i want to quickly uh, i don't want to lose path here um Stu, you mentioned compensatory mechanisms um i think this is a particularly important area that that we should get into because some people will literally you know with their pen and paper or with their apps that counts calories and exercise they're sort of a they're, they're assuming that, that what they think they've eaten and how many calories they think they've burned is literally going to result in some sort of mathematical sort of perfection of chipping away at their uh, energy balance. But what they're not allowing for is these compensatory mechanisms, let alone also there's a big difference between what we've learned from studies of you know one or two hours in the lab as compared to um, let's say studies done in metabolic chambers or metabolic ward studies, that sort of thing. But, but coming back to compensatory mechanisms, Stu, what, what do you think is worth knowing about that? Well, so, so the compensation that's discussed in the, in the meta-analysis that we reference in, in our article uh, is really, I mean, you know, for lack of a better word, it's, it's cheating, right? Mm. I mean, it, it, it could be uh, uh, an inherent uh, comp compensation and so that's probably uh, a down regulation of your your resting metabolic rate that a lot of people I think you know most people think that that's not a big deal or if they exercise you're able to somehow uh, you can mitigate it so you you might lessen it with exercise but you don't ablate it and um, again coming back to the it's fantastic data to go back and look at some of the uh, the biggest loser uh, data that's, that Kevin Hall's group published and see just how much your, 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 the resting metabolic rate in those folks went down and then think about how much that actually lessened the energy deficit that they perceived that they were putting themselves in. And it, it, it's pretty shocking. And, you know, so if you say to somebody, you know, your resting metabolic rate may go down by, you know, between 200 and 300 calories. And they're like, okay, that, yeah, I, I, I get that. And I'm like, but that, you know, that's, that's a, that's a three, two to three mile run. So if you ran five, it's now the really, you know, in reality, if the math were perfect, it's like you've run two. So that's the inherent, uh, the, the outside, the exogenous compensation is people just tend to cheat. And then, you know, I'm not making a value judgment on, on you know, uh, people's behaviors, but losing weight is, is difficult. Um, you know, we, we, we can see this in all of the clinical trials. It's difficult to lose it. Um, it's difficult more so than to, to keep it off. So whatever it is, um, you know, one of those other, those two things is sort of, is always working against you. So as Mike said, when you've somehow figured out the tricks, whatever they are, and there's multiple ways of doing it, um, it, it, it's a, it has to be a permanent change. And in all likelihood, what you use, like I said, to get there is the thing that you then hook onto that is what keeps you in that state. If you go back and try to eat the way you did or somehow, you know, whatever it is, 
go back to your old lifestyle, it, it, things don't work. So um, the changes are permanent. It, it's, it's running through adherence, I think, for a large part. And probably when you look then at adherence, it's, you know, uh, psychological executive function type um, variables that are really uh, predicting who are the bigger uh, losers that then can maintain the loss. But I don't think we really understand the magnitude of some of the changes that our body undergoes and fights to help uh, retain uh, body weight. Yeah. I've had some fascinating uh, conversations, which I've done podcasts with people like um, Professor Dylan Thompson and his, his team at Bath, uh, Professor James Betts, Dr. Javier Gonzalez, all about the, you know, this, the physiological, physiological side of, of these compensatory mechanisms, which is, you know, it is indeed fascinating. Um, and folks can go listen to that and then read up on all their papers. And it's, it's wonderful science. Uh, and you can get very sciencey on that conversation. But ultimately, the bigger picture here is people in the real world. Um, and, the, the, you know, the, the, the issues that Michael was talking about where, y I mean, you can have a bad day and that might actually influence how many donuts you eat. And, uh, uh, you know, there, there's, a, there, there's a lot of implications to that, which if we have time, we can come back to. But what I want to get into now is, um, you know, physical activity. Um, and why it's not just a case of burning calories. It's not just that. Um, and there's two angles there, which I'd like both get into both with both of you. With Michael, I'd, I'd like to just quickly discuss what the actual sort of health benefits are to physical activity. And then Stu, I'll come back to you and we'll, we'll quickly talk about what, right. how that might affect metabolism and that sort of thing. Right, Lauren. If, if you take physical activity independent of anything else, hmm. Uh, you, you get, if you follow the guidelines, 30 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity, you know, five, six days a week, you get about a, a four or five year extension of, of lifespan. And you also reduce all cause mortality by about 30, 40%, uh, sometimes as much as 50% if you do a little bit more. That's been known since the bus driver, bus conductor studies of Jeremy Morris. And that data has been remarkably consistent across cohorts. Uh, of all types. And about half of this reduction in risk is due to changes in things like blood pressure, lipids, uh, glucose, so forth. Uh, so traditional risk factors. The other half is really kind of unknown. And I think one of the things that Danny Green down in Perth, Western Australia has emphasized is how much it could be endothelial function. So your blood vessels just get healthier. And that happens within a matter of weeks of initiating a, a physical activity program. And it happens in people with high risk factor loads as well. So that's one thing that happens. The other thing that happens is, is people's vagal tone goes up. So their heart rate control and, and their heart rate variability tends to go up. And that has profound antiarrhythmic and anti-myocardial infarction uh, 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 implications. You also get something called ischemic preconditioning. So if you, if you do have a problem uh, with a myocardial infarction, you're much more likely to survive it. So there are all these sorts of, of non-traditional risk factors that are also modified, many of them, uh, with, again, within a matter of days or weeks of beginning endurance uh, training and, and strength training, for that matter. You also improve glucose uptake in your skeletal muscles, so you have a profound antidiabetic effect. All of these things are available uh, 
to anyone who begins to exercise, including uh, the modifications of traditional risk factors. So, you know, people talk about a polypill. Well, exercise is the ultimate polypill in terms of its multimodal uh, actions on really all uh, cardiometabolic risk factors, some non-traditional risk factors, and really every or many forms of cancer are also uh, at least epidemiologically reduced in, in uh, those who are physically active. I think really everything but melanoma because yeah. we tend to be out in the sun a bit more. Yeah. I mean, exercise is indeed medicine, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. Yeah. So, um, and that's why I find, I mean, when you start, when you, when you hear this and you see the evidence for this and just how significant it is, it is amazing really that people will, will choose, you know, should I just diet or should I try and do this through exercise when clearly you need to be doing both? Um, um, Stu, so we understand that exercise is, is clearly, as Michael's pointed out, important for health, wellness, longevity, um, even getting over problems. Um, but, you know, people are having this conversation about outrunning a bad diet because the main thing they're really talking about here is trying to lose weight, lose body fat. The, the role that exercise has in that, um, you know, and obviously there's impact on muscle, energy balance, but also there's a protective effect that I've heard you talk about before um, that, 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 that active muscle can have, uh, you know, on this. I mean, maybe you could just help us understand a bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I think, and, and uh, you know, I'm going to borrow a phrase of Mike's here, is that even in, in the face of elevated traditional risk factors, so whether you're hypertensive, even if you're a smoker, believe it or not, or if you have elevated cholesterol, or if you have... Um, high blood pressure, um, then, you know, exercising mitigates your risk in a downward sense in, in all of those situations. So, uh, and cardiorespiratory fitness then being the product of aerobic exercise. And, and you know, one of the points I want to make, and, and I've sort of been, this has been my little soapbox point, um, talking about, you know, the, the relative value of uh, if this were aerobic exercise and this were resistance, it's not like there are two worlds. In other words, this gives you, this mitigates your risk. This doesn't. And, you know, that sort of thing. They're probably much closer in terms of the risk mitigation that we, uh, we, we can see uh, than they are further apart. I, I would definitely say that there are some that are unique to aerobic exercise, such as cardiorespiratory fitness. But there are other things that are unique to resistance. Um, and that's probably a muscle mass issue. It's definitely a strength and function issue. Um, that greatly reduce your risk for a lot of things that aerobic otherwise wouldn't, for example. But, you know, the, the best of both worlds is consuming, you know, obviously the diet, prudent or otherwise, that works for you. Uh, and I would definitely agree that there are probably a series of uh, eating behaviors, uh, avoiding processed foods is one. Um, there's even a lot of data. In fact, Canada's uh, revamped food guide uh, strongly emphasizes a, cooking, and B, eating as a family, sitting around a table, and for reasons that, you know, are probably unrelated to the food that you eat, or maybe it's tied in there, and as much to the socialization experience, sitting around and eating dinner as a family is associated with parents and kids of lower body weight and better health profiles, etc. So, you know, how does that work? Is that an energy balance thing? probably partially, but there's some other things that are 
are, are built in there. So it's, it's nowhere near as simple as we're talking about, mm. but I think mm. a message that you can't, you know, uh, escape is that no matter what your risk factors are, even if you are very overweight, if you're physically active, if you get the closer you get to those guidelines, then your risk of, of uh, premature mortality, your risk of, well, and even if we talk about quality of life is improved when you follow the guidelines and as close as you can get to them. So, you know, the, the biggest drop in risk, and we're fond of saying this, is when you take somebody from doing nothing to doing something. And you don't have to change anything on the outside, even in terms of their body weight, to experience that risk. But, you know, um, and again, stealing a little bit of Mike's line here, exercise is not a vaccine. It doesn't, it's not like, you know, an inoculation. People who exercise still get sick. And, you know, so, but we're trying, we're trying to maximize our chances here. And it's, it's almost, you have to apologize for how good exercise is because it, it, it's, you know, if it came in a pill, uh, it would be crazy, right? Yeah. I, I mean, it is fascinating because, you know, we, I mean, look, we, we all live in the real world and we've all had our interests in diet and exercise. And I don't mean from a professional perspective, you know, these, these are real world things that we and our families go through. And I mean, I've got friends who, who will say things like, uh, well, I'm doing the extra exercise to help compensate for the wine that I drink or, <laughs> you know, it, it, it sounds like a plan to me. <laughs> yeah i, I quote i'm doing the finger wagging i have a friend yeah. who says that yeah ask your ask friend. friend yeah ask friend. um so the other thing is 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 there the, there is a thing where people will will do something only until they achieve their goal and then it just right. drops and you do talk about the recidivism of weight loss in your paper. Why did you feel that that was an important topic to mention in your paper there? Well, I think for a couple of reasons. One is one way to blunt the recidivism is in one way that's really important for weight maintenance is exercise. Because as Stu mentioned earlier, you have these compensatory uh, behavioral or, or down regulation or resting metabolic rate and exercise can help buffer that. I think the other thing, if you, if you again, listen to people who've lost a lot of weight and keep it off, is, is uh, you know, exercise, you know, on a regular basis helps, again, buffer a bad day. The day you do stop at Tim Hortons and have two donuts instead of one yeah. or have one at all. And, and I think the other thing, too, is, you know, we're all subject to what's called decision fatigue. We make hundreds of decisions throughout the day. And if we can, anything we can do to buffer that, to reduce the amount of decisions we make and make these things as, as brain-dead routine as possible, is really important. And that's another way, if you can just build some exercise into your daily life uh, and physical activity, you're going to be ahead in terms of buffering some of those mechanisms Stu was talking about. Yeah, no, that, that's great. So look, I, I mean, look, amazingly, we're almost out of time here. We've been chatting away. Um, we've expanded on this topic, unpacked it. But you end your paper with um, a comment where in your view that the phrase that you cannot outrun a bad diet requires a crucial clarification and overriding footnote. Perhaps you can um, tell us what that, that, that sort of crucial re-clarification is um, and what the footnote is just so we can end this on a good, on a good point here. 
So you go first. Yeah, okay. So so my, my, my footnote would be um, if we remove the lens away from weight loss as the sole and single health outcome that we're trying to achieve, if you exercise, weight loss really doesn't matter as much as we think it does. So in other words, the benefits of exercise uh, almost in a sense, not necessarily Trump, but um, at least compensate in part for a, a higher than normal body weight or, you know, uh, all of the, the risk factors that go along with that. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and Michael? Ted, I don't have a haiku here for you, Lauren, <laughs> but I would say find a diet you can adhere to increase your physical activity. Yeah. So that's my, my short form uh, statement there. And the good things that Stu has mentioned will happen for you. Yeah, and I, I like the way they, you know, that paper I mentioned, the first paper you cited by Sparling et al. on energy balance, and they make, you know, the opening paragraph in that is Adam and Eve, salt and pepper, rod and reel are all recognized pairs where one is not thought of without the other. And this is one of those scenarios, isn't it? Is why are we having this conversation that blah, 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 can outrun a bad day? No, you need, to, you, need to get, you need to get it all right. And that, that's lifestyle, isn't it? Get your lifestyle Correct. right. So thank you guys. Um, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Um, I'd encourage everyone to read um, your paper, which I will link to. I very much recommend, which people don't do enough, is to actually look up those papers you've referenced because, as I said, I myself discovered that paper, which um, yeah. is one of my favorites currently, and, uh, and the other papers are all worth, worth reading. Um, I know, Stu, you're, you're sort of a Twitter rock star and, and such, but for those that want to... Uh, to follow you, I'll link to things like ResearchGate and, and so on so they can look up all your research. But just to follow you generally, uh, Stu, how, how do people get hold of you? Um, I'm, I'm MacKinProf, M-A-C-K-I-N-P-R-O-F on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Facebook as well. Uh, I, I try and be as active as possible. It's not, not always happening, but um, I, I, I found recently that Twitter uh, has disintegrated a little bit for me in terms of... Uh, arguments where you, you feel like you're chasing your tail so 280 at a time you can't really have a discussion it's just it's more sort of you know little jipes back and forth and uh, it drives me crazy but but i try and hang in there so so bear with me yeah 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 I, i'm i'm michael same yeah i was just looking up my twitter handle it's dr uh, m joiner fantastic that's, that's the best way uh uh to kind of follow me and and for your regular daily haiku <laughs> There you go. I'll try to make one for the diet and exercise piece. No, do it. Yeah, it, it almost. You got to go five seven five. We have to be disciplined here. I know. Our friends in Japan, our friends in Japan will be offended. Oh dear, oh dear. I, I do just want to point out that Mike has his running haiku. I have a lifting haiku in there as well. So uh, fantastic. It's, it's out there. I'll have to dig it up. I'll retweet it again. Please do. Yeah, no, we'll get, yeah, we'll get one thing, Lauren, what Stu was talking about endurance versus strength training. Yeah. Is the other thing I find interesting is, is uh, it's, it's nice. It's making a comeback is I, I, I always wonder when circuit training became illegal, <laughs> you know, cause it, it, it's a great way to go. Yeah. I, uh, look, we mentioned the word nuanced in context. Um, I don't think we got enough time to, to, to draw that one out. Um, but listen, thank you very much for your time, guys. It's been fascinating and very much an enjoyable conversation as usual. 
Um, and uh, I, of course, am Lauren Bannock, and we'll come back with many more podcasts. I took a year and a half off uh, to do various things, and um, I'm really enjoy doing this. So uh, just um, tune in for the next one, which will come back uh, very soon. Look forward to it. Yeah. Awesome.